0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Times of Israel's daily briefing. Today is Wednesday, December 7th. I'm Amanda Borchel Dan here with our diplomatic correspondent, Lisa Berman, and diaspora affairs correspondent, Judah Ari Gross. Hello to you both. Good morning, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. Laser is just back from a whirlwind trip to Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates with Israeli President Isaac Herzog. He'll brief us on that, as well as the curious summoning by the Foreign Ministry of the United Nations envoy to the Middle East yesterday. Judah is also back from Moldova and will report on efforts to expedite immigration of Ukrainians to Israel, as well as the historical connections of far-right Noam head Avi Maoz to the organization and future connections. But first, a short break. And we're back. Laser. let's start with you and briefly tell us why the foreign ministry summoned the United Nations envoy to the Middle East yesterday. That's a pretty drastic step, isn't it?
1: Well, foreign ministry officials, who I should add, did not put out an official comment or official statement about the meeting, told me that this was definitely just a regular work meeting. It was not a reprimand. It was not a clarification. So they certainly tried to downplay it. Um, But at the same time, I'm sure it was not the most comfortable conversation. There was that incident on Friday, which I'm sure um, most of the readers have seen our our coverage of, where a a young Palestinian, according to uh, Israeli police, got into a scuffle with an Israeli motorist, tried to break into his car. That motorist, who was an off-duty IDF officer, shot him in the leg, and then that person attacked a border police officer, stabbed him in the face, and then tried to steal another border policeman's gun um, and was then shot dead. Tor Wennesland, who is the UN's special envoy for the peace process, tweeted on Saturday that he was horrified. By footage of the scuffle and of the killing, and that his heartfelt condolences go to the family. Such incidents, he tweeted, must be fully and promptly investigated, and those responsible held accountable. Obviously, Israel, Israeli leaders across the board were deeply shocked by this. You know, they're saying this is just a you know a terror attack. Someone was attacking a civilian uh, civilian car, and then was trying to literally assaulted. Uh, stabbed one of our police officers. We can't have any sort of international representative, uh, you know, tweeting that they're sympathetic and, and that that uh, that they're horrified by this. So that that was the conversation that happened. They again, they did not release any details um, of that conversation at the foreign ministry. Again, I think they're trying to downplay it, but send that message that. Uh, a UN official, um, especially in his position, cannot be tweeting things like this and cannot be expressing sympathy with people that attack Israeli um, soldiers, is- Israeli policemen, especially at a time of heightened tensions.
0: And did Weisland himself have any kind of follow-up tweeting?
1: Uh, no, there was nothing uh, so far. I think both sides I would imagine agree to minimize this at this point, and move forward, but um, this is someone who uh, you know has has in the past, upset Israel and Israelis with uh, some of his comments.
0: Okay, so let's talk about your recent trip to the Gulf with President Isaac Herzog. On Sunday, before you took off on the airplane, you laid out some of its goals. Now, do you think that any or all of them were met?
1: I think the subtext here is that the Bahrainis are not happy with the way the relationship has gone economically. You know, I don't think it's what's going on in the Palestinian front is especially concerning to uh, the leadership there, but there was an Israeli official on the trip who said that they feel like the little sister of the Emiratis. And I think that is correct in terms of Israel's attention. Israeli tourists, Israeli business is focused more on Dubai and Abu Dhabi and the UAE and not in little Bahrain. And um, their desire is to get some real Israeli investment into the country. And you could hear that in comments from the leaders where they te- they spoke about, we need to take this to the next step. And we need to upgrade this relationship. You know, It sounds like a positive spin, but that means they're not happy with where the relationship has gone so far. And I would also add in all the Abraham Accord countries, uh, support and polls for the Abraham Accords is declining steadily since 2020. So in Bahrain, you had about 40% who were for very much positive about the Abraham Accords or somewhat positive. And now it's at about 20%. So that is not a good sign. So there are certainly reasons to worry. I'd assume some of that is because uh, there were expectations that the Abram Accords would bring to real changes in the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. But also, you know, these things have to uh, touch the lives of, of regular citizens in those countries. So um, Herzog brought with him a very robust economic delegation. From what they told me, that the Bahrainis you know, were very excited about their presence and are excited about the opportunities. In the UAE, I think you know it was a, it was a much shorter stop at the, in the UAE. It was only a few hours. Um, interestingly, MBZ, who was the president of the UAE, a very powerful figure there, uh, had to push back the Herzog meeting because he flew to Qatar to meet with the Qatari leader. Now, Qatar and the UAE do not uh, have ambassadors in each other's capitals right now, um, but there certainly is a warming up. But it is maybe is no coincidence that uh, he went first to Qatar and then met with Israel's president. Um, you know, let's not forget that Israel and Qatar had that agreement before the World Cup that there would be an Israeli diplomatic presence in the country and direct flight. So, so that could be something to watch as well. But Her- President Herzog was certainly very positive about how the how the meeting went, and I think he gave something of a. a a warning or a call to Israeli officials that that you know, Isra- all Israeli leaders have to start thinking about how they uh, how they upgrade these relations as well. So maybe that was a message that he heard in Bahrain that he said publicly that hope that he was hoping that uh, Israel's incoming leadership will hear.
0: While you're in Bahrain, you also met with the very small Jewish community there. So give us a little bit, of, set the scene a little bit. What's happening there with the with the Jews?
1: Sure. Jewish community doesn't number more than fifty people. Um, they're all old trading families, like you know the Nunu family, the Khadori family. So I met some of the people, and I knew some before from my previous trip. The leader of the community, Ibrahim Nunu, and I, you know, were able to speak a little bit in one of the palaces. And they they also had a private audience uh, with President Herzog. They said they were able to have Shabbat services actually last week. Um, there was a couple of Chabad rabbis in, and um, even some some U.S. personnel serving on the Fifth Fleet, which is stationed in Bahrain. You know, hopefully the Abraham Accords will bring more Jewish tourism there as well and Jewish businesses there to strengthen that that community, which is the only indigenous community uh, remaining in the Gulf.
0: And Lazar, I always ask you, since you're an observant Jew, how was the kosher food?
1: Oh, you know, it was present. It wasn't awful, but it certainly wasn't did not compare to the uh, buffets that were spread out for everyone else. I don't go on these things for the food. But if I have just something to eat, then I'm happy. So there was definitely kosher food provided at every meal. But, you know, these things are somewhat airplane food-y in their appearance and in their taste.
0: All right, step it up, you guys. Okay, thanks, Laser. Goodbye, Amanda. Goodbye. We'll go to a short break now. we're back. Judah, you obviously just got back yourself, as I mentioned, from Moldova. Now, I bet it was a bit different in terms of the weather.
2: Uh, it was a bit colder, but I did have some delicious kosher food. So, uh, you oh, know.
0: pluses and minuses. <laughs> <laughs> pluses and minuses. What are you going to do? Exactly. So, we have a piece up right now on the site that's uh, about the time you spent there with Mark Dovev, who works with an organization called Native. Before we dive in, tell our listeners what this organization does.
2: Sure. So, Nativ has existed. There's about 15 natives in Israel, which is important to clarify. So, this one is um, an office that's within the prime minister's office. It's existed for about 70 years now. It originally was the office that was responsible for maintaining a connection between the state of Israel and Soviet Jewry. And then, in more recent decades, since the fall of the Soviet Union, unlike any other country around the world. The, the function that Native serves is to check people's eligibility for citizenship, for Israeli citizenship. Um, they also put on cultural activities in the FSU, or however you want to define it, in Eastern Europe and Russia. And so th- those are the two aspects of the of the organization. Um, I spoke to um, Mark a little bit about both, but mostly about his efforts in terms of checking eligibility for immigration to Israel, which is governed by the law of return, which says basically anyone with at least one Jewish uh, Jewish grandparent is eligible, provided they don't follow another religion. And so their responsibility, because there was this just complete breakdown of Jewish communal life in the former Soviet Union, you can't just sort of get a letter from a rabbi because the rabbi is not necessarily going to be familiar enough with your your family and your history to be able to say, you know, concretely that you're, that you're Jewish or that one of your parents is Jewish. So instead, they rely more on documentation, because in a lot of Soviet documentation, it was listed if you were Jewish or not. So they both do interviews and speak to applicants to hear a little bit about their family's history. And then they also review The documentation so now the state of play uh in terms of ukrainians immigrating to israel as our readers probably know you know in the immediate aftermath of russia launching the invasion of ukraine there is a a pretty large you know a huge mass exodus of you know thousands of people pretty much immediately and you had hundreds of people immigrating to israel in some cases, hundreds a day or, you know, hundreds and hundreds a week. Um, So now after that original exodus, things have slowed down a little bit, where now there's a couple dozen people immigrating every week. So their work has sort of scaled back, but they're, they're dealing with a lot of the same population. The stories from people who are going through the process are you know, extremely difficult. These are people who have, you know, been trying. And in a lot of cases, these are people who have been trying to sort of wait out the war in Ukraine and hold up at home. But for one reason or another, just feel that they can't continue to do that and are now picking up uh, and coming to Israel. In some cases, in a lot of the cases of the people that I spoke with while I was there, um, it's people who have relatives here in Israel who, you know, some of them have been to Israel lots of times before. Some of them have never been to Israel before. In some cases, it's elderly people who, for one reason or another, were not able to get out Uh, earlier on, but now we're able to and we're sort of pushed by family in Israel to come and join them. Um, And in some cases, it's real just desperation of people who were forced to flee and there was no other good alternatives of places to go other than the state of Israel. So one of the things that really stuck out from my conversation with Mark, who's been deeply involved in this immigration process from day one, um, is that in doing this work with these people, he came to understand you know, the, the sentiment that Israel is a refuge, that Israel is a haven for people. Um, and that's something that he said, like he was aware of uh, as a concept in the past, and he's worked in immigration for a long time. But, you know, dealing with people who are really in that moment of distress, who were, you know, really, truly refugees fleeing an awful war, that that's really when that concept uh, sunk into him.
0: Now, in Israel, there's currently a conversation about the law of return and the grandchild clause, which I would assume most of these Ukrainian refugees are using to get into the country. Has that filtered out over to Moldova or to the Ukrainians who are trying to come here?
2: So, I just want to clarify one small point. There's actually no good data that exists on the use of the grandchild clause. And a lot of the people, I, I would say, I can say pretty confidently that the majority of people who are not Jewish according to Jewish law um, are not coming into Israel using the grandchild clause. They're more likely children of a Jewish father and a non Jewish mother, or they are the spouses of of Jews. That's much more common um, than the grandchildren, though that is sort of the it's become a bit of a, a buzzword and, uh, and that's become the the fighting issue. And the reason in part that it's come up um, is so this uh, office of Nativ, which is is under the coalition agreements, is supposed to go into the control of a far right Uh, M.K. Avi Maoz, who has said explicitly that he's opposed to non-Jewish immigration to Israel. So it's raised a number of concerns. In general, Immigration is governed by the law of return, which is a law, which is not something that uh, Avi Ma'oz or anyone else can sort of change uh, because they feel like it. Um, and there's significant pushback to changing it from the Likud. We even heard sort of on the dais of the of the Knesset yesterday, um, Soviet born Yuli Edelstein saying he was he was opposed to changing the law of return. Nativ is sort of certainly aware of it. Mark Dovev, you know, was certainly aware that these conversations are happening. Um, his view is basically we're civil servants if the law changes we'll follow the law but right now we follow whatever the law says whatever protocols are set for us by the interior ministry in terms of what what demands they are um and he also stressed you know he said like we're we're not the rabbinate we don't decide who's jewish who's not jewish we decide who is eligible to immigrate to Israel under the law of return. And he sort of has that, you know, that's their, that's their mission and that's sort of what they focus on. So for now, they're carrying on as normal, checking the documents, doing these interviews, you know, approving people and so on. Um, and if the government changes the law, then they'll, you know, have to follow, follow in suit.
0: Obviously. Now, you mentioned already Avi Maoz. Tell us briefly about his historical connections to Soviet Jewry and to Natan Sharansky himself.
2: Yeah. So Avi Maoz, uh, who's this very controversial figure in Israel for a number of reasons. He has very, you know, very clear anti-LGBT. You know, his party's uh, sort of explicitly homophobic. Um, He's also said some things that are pretty easily construed as racist against Arabs and non-Jews in general. and he is sort of taking over in this role in uh, the office of nativ. Um, it's unclear exactly what sort of power he's going to have. He can sort of change protocol slightly, make things a little bit more difficult. Um, and for him, when he took, when he announced, when it was announced that he was taking over this role, he referred to it as, um, you know. What do you call closing a you know coming full circle uh, in his life? Um, Avi Ma'oz sort of initially uh, rose to prominence, sort of uh, some degree of prominence, I guess, in the early mid 1980s. Um, He started working with uh, Natan Sharansky, the former minister, MK, Jewish agency head, etc. Former, you know, famed. prisoner of Zion in the Soviet Union um, for working with Natan Sharansky's wife, Avital, to try to secure his release. He, you know, flew around the world, rallying Jewish communities, meeting with uh, uh, government leaders around the world, including in the United States with Ronald Reagan, to try to get people to um, advocate for Natan Sharansky's release and generally for, um, you know, Soviet Jewry. Um, And Uh, He remained close with with Natan Sharansky for years. He served uh, as his uh, director general in two ministries with with Natan Sharansky when he was in government. Um, And then eventually the two... Sort of split, um, partially because of uh, political differences. Um, Avi Ma'oz certainly resents, uh, represents sort of the the far the most conservative views um, of the Israel sort of uh, national religious community. What's called hardal. He's sort of very much on the on the on the extreme side of that uh, of that spectrum. Um, and the Tancherinsky is a bit more center center right. Um, I think in his views, and that's sort of where a lot of that split um you know sort of came from um and yet it's sort of he has this this in you know very significant historical ties to um soviet jewry and sort of the the well-known thing the reason why a lot of um soviet-born right-wing lawmakers oppose changing the law of return is because there's a general understanding among soviet jews that uh There was, because of the, because of the conditions in the Soviet Union, there was lots of intermarriage, and a lot of the people who were some of the most famous advocates for Soviet jewelry were not necessarily Jewish. uh, Under. Uh, according under halacha, according to Jewish law, um, and so th- there's there's a lot of tension that's sort of baked into there. Um, and I believe I've said on our podcast before. I don't know how this uh, this debate over the law of return is going to turn out. Um, b- members of the religious Zionist party uh, and other religious parties that are in the this coalition to be um, have said that they intend to make this a, a real demand. Um, if that's actually going to play out because of some pushback from the Likud, I don't know. But it's certainly sparking a real debate about what it means, uh, you know, who, who gets included and who is, you know, part, who is considered Israeli, who's considered Jewish, what those two definitions mean um, regarding one another. So uh, it's certainly an interesting discussion that's going to be going on, regardless of how this piece of legislation turns out.
0: Okay, Judah, thank you so much. And uh, thanks for joining me today. Sure. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's daily briefing And thanks to our producer Gilad Brownstein And to Gili Amar for this this out-of-this-world music You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell Released every Friday Until next time Shalom